If you would, please open your copy of God's Word to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4 will be in verse 7 through 10. I want to do something a little different this morning. Instead of expositing the text per se, I want to take a more topical approach, a character study, as you were, in faithfulness. Would you breathe a word of prayer with me? Lord, Abba Father, we thank you again this morning for the opportunity to be gathered at your feet, to revel in that good portion that is ours to know you, and to gaze upon your beauty in your word. Lord, we ask that you will meet with us right now. And Father, I ask for preaching strength. I ask for clarity of mind, conviction of heart, and concision of speech, that I may declare your truth from your word to your people, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help me, God. In Jesus' name we pray. So I'm going to need you all to wake up and talk back to me, okay? At least you can do that for my last Sunday of residency, right? Okay, are we ready? All right. So I start this last Sunday of my pastoral residency as I did my first Sunday, an ordinary man who serves an extraordinary God. It is my prayer this morning that it can be said that I served faithfully with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so towards you all. If I have erred or offended anyone, I beg your forgiveness. If anyone has been blessed or by any measure been encouraged, exhorted, or built up through my ministry amongst you, I beg you, give glory to God alone. It has been a joy and delight to pastor you over this last year, saints. Indeed, I'm able to testify to your faithfulness, your fidelity, and devotion to God and this beautiful family that is incarnation. Just to name a few, I've had the joy of working with Ron Fisher and Aaron Taylor and John Orsell this past year as we stood up a new missional community Marvelous men. These are faithful brothers. What a joy it has been to labor with Kelsey and the praise band and planning worship. Sometimes I would change up the songs on her, but she always did her best to roll with it and accommodate my request. Kelsey is a faithful sister. Dana Standridge and I started off on staff around the same time. And I'm amazed at her dedication, creativity, and care for our children in this church. Dana is a faithful sister. Michelle Phillips, our church administrator extraordinaire, she gets things done. Her administrative gifts, her efficiency and proficiency can't be touched. Michelle is a faithful sister. Deacon Irma. Her steadfast service at the Lord's table, in the liturgy, and in declaring the gospel is a gift to our gathered assembly week in, week out. Deacon Irma is a faithful sister. Sarah Ma Taylor, 
her passion for missions and multi-ethnic ministry, to see the gospel go forth to every tribe, nation, and tongue in our universities is a challenge and an encouragement to me. Sarah is a faithful sister. Peter Labar, that self-described son of a bish. Bishop, son of a bish, yeah, as in bishop, okay? His dad is the bishop. Here is a man that delights in fishing for men. <laughs> Raising up young leaders that will take over their generation. For Christ, Peter is a faithful brother. Carissa Bodo, a.k.a. First Lady. Don't let her stature deceive you. Here is a giant in the faith with a discerning heart that is as sharply attuned as her wit. Her love for the church and tireless toil and ministry is a thing to behold, admire, and covet. Carissa is a faithful sister. Dr. Sarah Hall, the venerable scholar, peerless in skill and ability to distill complex theological concepts and doctrine to its building blocks, and plain meaning sufficient for a child to grasp. Far too many times she has outshone the preachers even before we rose up to speak. Dr. Hall is a faithful sister. John Hall, the erudite Englishman who invited me and my family to a tea party. No lie. And it was through him, actually, that I was introduced to the Incarnation family. His passion for the gospel, his powerful proclamation of the same, and patient pastoral heart has often brought me to tears, encouraged me, cut me to the marrow, challenged me, comforted me, and lifted up my gaze to see Christ. I will never forget Pastor John workshopping my sermons with me during my summer internship back in 2019. I'm a better preacher, indeed a better man today, because of Pastor John's patient and careful tutelage. John Hall is a faithful brother. And there there's Taylor Bodo. When I first met Taylor, I was annoyed by him right away. <laughs> Why, do you ask? Because he asked probing, incisive questions caring less about pleasantries and more about who I truly am as a person. He wanted to get to the heart of the matter, to my heart. A more spirit-filled, deep-thinking, visionary discipler I know not. And while I've only known Taylor about three years, it feels like we've been brothers for at least two lifetimes. I marvel at his passion for the gospel, his deep love for the church, and particularly the saints at incarnation, his prophetic voice that brooks no compromise with the revealed truth of God's word, his tenderness and care for the least and the lost, his passion for biblical justice, his skillful engagement with skeptics and unbelievers, his adeptness at discipleship and leadership that calls not for followers, but raises up more leaders. Here is a man of God the true apostolic anointing. He is God's good gift to me, my family, and the church. Taylor is a faithful brother. 
cannot be gainsaid, beloved, that incarnation is truly blessed with faithful brothers and sisters. This is a church with a deep bench. Now, I've named but a few of the many amongst us that are laboring in visible and invisible ways for the cause of Christ. These are treasures in clay vessels, jewels in God's crown, stars in the constellation of saints. But I say all these things not to gas them up. Somebody check on Taylor, make sure his head isn't tilting too far. (laughs) For it is not they, but Christ who works in them, both to will and to do of his good pleasures. Truth be told, they are all fallible. They falter and they fail. But thanks be to God that even when they are unfaithful, God remains ever faithful. There it is, church, the topic and thesis of my sermon this morning. God is faithful. Can I get an amen to that? God is faithful. And as I meditated on the text before us today, where Paul lists a number of faithful men in his ministry, I could not help but take stock of this past year of those who embody faithfulness and who have taught me what it means to be faithful during my time here at Incarnation. And indeed, the singular thread that ties them together and the faithful men in our text this morning is their faith in God, which binds them in service and devotion to God and to one another. In other words, faithfulness cannot be divorced from faith in God. That is why it is said of Abram in Genesis 15, 6, that Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord considered his response of faith as proof of faithfulness. In sum, the one who truly has faith will be counted faithful. Here in Colossians 4, we find certain men described as being faithful. And we want to see this morning what their faith in God tells us about the meaning of faithfulness. There are three things. Let me give it to you now before you check out on me. The first, faithfulness is belief in God, which transforms the fugitive into the faithful. Second, faithfulness is commitment to God, which produces steadfast service and devotion. And the third, faithfulness is reliance on God, who secures and preserves us so that we are found faithful in the end. Let us meet Onesimus. In the second part of verse 8, says, And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. Now, Colossians was written to the church at Colossae, and another letter accompanying the delivery of this apostle, of this epistle, is Philemon, which was written to one family in the Colossian church, the family of a man named Philemon. Now, Philemon was one of the pillars of the Colossian church. Most likely, the church met in Philemon's house. It says in verse 2 of Philemon, the church in your house. Philemon was a convert of Apostle Paul. In verse 19 of Philemon, Paul says, you owe to me your own self. 
and he's a very wealthy man. He owned some slaves. One of the slaves Philemon owned was a man named Onesimus. This man we find in verse 8 and 9 of Colossians 4. But Onesimus didn't like living in Philemon's house. And he didn't like being a slave. I mean, who would? So he ran away. Not only did he run away, he also stole some money from his master. He ran away, and he ran all the way to Rome. And he ran right into the apostle Paul. And just as Paul has led Philemon to Christ, he led Philemon's runaway slave to Christ. And Onesimus' resulting faith in God transforms him from a faithless slave into a faithful brother. Paul later writes his letter to Philemon to ask him to receive Onesimus back. And in the letter, he tells Philemon, Onesimus may have gone away as a slave, and he may have stolen from you. And he may have proven faithless, but I'm sending him back to you transformed. He is changed. He has a newfound faith. And he's coming back not as a slave, but as a brother. See here how Paul describes Onesimus in Colossians 4.9. Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. He calls him a brother. Notice also, he calls him beloved. He calls him faithful. And in the letter to Philemon, he says, Onesimus is, and I love this, my very heart. Onesimus is my very heart. This once faithless slave is now faithful brother. But it gets better. In a letter written by Ignatius, one of the early church fathers to the Colossian church, it is written, since then in the name of God, I received your entire congregation in the person of Onesimus, a man of inexpressible love, and your pastor. I beseech you in Christ Jesus to love him and all who are like him. We learn from Ignatius that Onesimus eventually became the pastor of the Colossian church. Behold, then, the transforming power of faith in God. From runaway slave to pastor, from fugitive to faithful. And our, our reasonable response to this transformative work of God is to live committed to God. That's our second point, that committed to, commitment to God produces service and devotion. We see this in the life of Tychicus and Aristarchus. Tychicus is a man with a servant's heart. Verse 7, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. In chapter 4 of Colossians, we see that Tychicus a companion of Paul since his third missionary journey, has been tasked by Paul to deliver letters to the church in Colossae and Ephesus. Ephesians 6, 21 says, But that you also may know my affairs and how I do, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, shall make known to you all things whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose. 
That's almost the exact quote from what we find here in Colossians. Now, you may say, well, delivering letters doesn't sound too hard. Shows how much you know. Well, listen, the trip from Rome to Laodicea and Colossae was a long and perilous journey. So you cross Italy on foot and then sail to the Adriatic and then cross Greece and then sail the Aegean. And then you'd have to walk up the steep Lycus River Valley to Laodicea and Colossae. In other words, this wasn't an easy trip by any measure. But Paul says he's going to come and he's going to bring these letters. Now, what could cause a man to undergo such an arduous journey? What could lead him to go through such dangers and toil? Friends, it is his belief in God that led to his commitment to God, which produced faithful service and devotion. We know very little about Tychicus. We don't know if he had any credentials, any doctor's degrees, any seminary degree. He had no particular heritage. He had no great sermons that he preached. We don't know anything that he ever said. Yet, here is one whom Paul calls a faithful minister and fellow servant. He never attained prominence. He just served. But notice that his service is primarily not to Paul, but to the Lord. The text says, for he's a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. He's committed to God. And it is ultimately his service in the Lord Jesus Christ that finds its commendation through Paul. Commitment to God also produces faithful devotion, as we see in the life of Aristarchus. Let's meet Aristarchus in verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Now we first meet Aristarchus in Acts 19, also during Paul's third missionary journey while he was in Ephesus. When Paul decides to go to Jerusalem, he takes Aristarchus along. If you remember, Paul was captured as a prisoner in Jerusalem, and then he moved to Caesarea on the coast. And then he goes to Rome to be tried, where he's writing this letter as a prisoner. Through it all, Aristarchus is there with him. As a prisoner in Jerusalem, Aristarchus hung around. At Caesarea, he hung around. On the crazy tempest-tossed ship ride to Rome, he hung around. And in Rome, while chained to the Praetorian Guard, guess who's there with Paul? Aristarchus, he hung around, and Paul calls him my fellow prisoner. Mind you, the guy hasn't been charged with a crime. He's just hanging with Paul. Through thick and thin, ups and downs, storms and imprisonments, shipwrecks and snake bites, this guy was still there. Here is a man who loved deeply and cared deeper still. So much so that Paul calls him a fellow prisoner, even though he wasn't technically in prison. But he chose to make Paul's lifestyle his lifestyle because he knew that Paul needed him. What a great display of faithfulness this is, that faith in God will produce such loyalty, love, 
and devotion. Oh, that we would have more people like Aristarchus in our church. People who are not looking to lead the meeting or jostling to speak at the lectern. They don't grasp for prominence in the church, but they are the most beloved of all because they are the burden bearers. And you know, we don't know what Aristarchus did either. The text doesn't tell us. But whatever he did, he gave up his freedom to do it, to be a prisoner with Paul. Here's the point. The Lord's work would never be done if it weren't for people like Aristarchus, people willing to give up their liberty, their rights, their ambition, their wants and their desires, their comforts and ease to do that which is hard, that which is difficult, that which no one else would do, to enter into the pain and hardships and struggles of fellow believers, to be a burden bearer, to care well and to care Deep. And how are they able to do this? And why do they do this? Well, I submit to you, beloved, that it is because Christ has carried the greatest burden that weighed them down. And now their only reasonable response is to care for others as Christ has cared for them. Because faith in God transforms us into devoted servants of God and his people. The truth be told, beloved, even after we've been transformed, even after we've put our faith in God, we still mess up. We still stumble and fail. We still falter and fail. We're not as committed as we ought to be. We're not as devoted as we should be. And this is why our understanding of faithfulness ultimately cannot rest on our capabilities, but in God's ability. In other words, it's our reliance on God's faithfulness towards us that secures our faithfulness until the end. Let me introduce you to Mark. Verse 10 in the middle, and Mark the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he, came, if he comes to you, welcome him. Some quick background on this Mark dude. Early on in the book of Acts, as the apostle Paul is moving into ministry, he's paired with Barnabas, and in Acts 13.5 it says, And when they were in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. That person is John Mark. The same person we see here in Colossians 4. John Mark is helping Paul and Barnabas early on in their ministry until we get to Acts 13, 13. Lucky number 13. Where we see Paul and his company in Perga of Pamphylia. The text says, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Mark couldn't hang. And we don't know exactly why John Mark bailed, but we do know that his departure didn't go over well with Paul. Later on in Acts 15.37, as Paul and Barnabas were about to set out on their second missionary journey, Barnabas says to Paul, let's take Mark. And Paul goes, you're joking, right? And in the words of the great sage Randy Jackson, Paul was like, that's no for me, dog. John Mark ain't coming. And Paul and Barnabas, they got into it, man. 
so much so that they split up and went their separate ways. Acts 15, 39, 40, Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed. But thanks be to God that Mark's story doesn't end there. And there, because it doesn't end as the God who split up the dynamic duo. Colossians 4.10, concerning whom you receive commandments, he becomes to you, receive him. Mark is changed. And the churches in Asia are told, if Mark shows up, you can receive him. He's no longer the guy that flaked. He's a fellow worker. He's a faithful brother. Mark was a fellow worker and faithful brother. Indeed, Mark got the wonderful privilege that belonged only to four men in the whole of human history. John Mark wrote one of the Gospels as dictated to him by Peter. We call it the Gospel according to... And in 2 Timothy 4.11, as Paul is closing out his life, he says to Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you for he's very useful to me in the ministry. Isn't that good? Paul says to Timothy, when you come, I just want you to bring one guy. I want you to bring Mark, you know, the former washout. Bring him along because he's useful to me in ministry. Beloved, Mark shows us that there's a future for failures. When people write you off, when culture cancels you, when society throws its bars around you, God stands with his arms wide open and says, I'm a God of second chances. Oh, but can I lean into this a little bit? You see, God is not just a God of a second chance. Because if you feel it like I feel it, you done used up your second chance a long time ago. But we got a God who's a God of 10, 15, 30, 40. Some of us are 777,000 chance. He's a God with boundless mercy, compassion, and grace. I mean, look at Abraham who decided to help God out by making his own heir with his wife's servant. But God gave him another chance and kept his promise with the child of promise. Check out Moses who struck the rock when he should have spoken to the rock, but God gave him another chance. Look at David who indulged in the lust of his flesh and murdered an innocent man to cover his tracks. And rather than God destroying him, God gave him another chance. Oh man, come here Isaiah, the prophet with a filthy mouth who ran into the presence of God that one day in the temple and said, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst an unclean people. But instead of dying, God cleansed his lips, stood him up, and used him to deliver prolific poetry to the church. Where's the B3 organ when I need one? Come here, Jonah, the reluctant prophet who ran away from God, who was thrown into the sea and swallowed by a fish. But instead of dying in his disobedience, instead of losing his preaching license and being defrocked, the book says the word of God came to Jonah. 
second time because we got a God who doesn't throw away rebellious preachers. He's a God of yet another chance. Come here, Peter, that pioneer of the concealed carry weapon, the man who said, who denied Jesus three times. Peter said, I don't know the man. And then he used some words I'm not permitted to say from this pulpit. And then he ran away in cowardice. But when God was putting together the program for Pentecost and was looking for a preacher to stand in the 9 a.m. slot, he picked the same joker that had denied him not a few days before to win 3,000 souls into the church. Come here, Paul. Help me close this sermon. God, this man who was terrorizing the church, who was seeking to stamp out the church, God knocked him off his high horse. He blinded him and then settled the score with him and then called him, what, into service as his own. And then God used him to write nearly half of the New Testament because when we look at Scripture, we see a faithful God who gives failures a future. He's a God of yet another chance. And I'm grateful, church. I'm grateful that faithfulness is not dependent on me. Even as I enter into this ministry, I'm grateful that faithfulness is a fruit of the Holy Spirit because I haven't been faithful. I failed at faithfulness. I flaked and flamed out. I have faltered and I have fallen. But even though I have been faithless, Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.13, God remains faithful. That's why ultimately our faith is not in our ability, our trustworthiness, or our righteousness. God knew we were a faithless people. That's why the promise keeper made the promise not with us. He made the promise with himself. In Genesis 15, God made a promise with Abraham, knowing that he would be unfaithful. And because he knew that, he himself walked in between the animals that had been cut in two. In essence, saying to Abram, I know you won't be faithful, but when you are unfaithful, like these animals, I myself will be ripped apart in your place. Now, the entire Old Testament is a picture of Abram's descendants' unfaithfulness to God. Indeed, of all humanity's unfaithfulness. And yet God proved himself faithful to us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us on the cross. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was ripped apart in our place. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was placed upon him. Christ experienced the severity of God's judgment so that we may always experience God's faithfulness. And the only way, friends, the only way we can ever be faithful to our friends, to our neighbors, to our family, to our church, is because God has been faithful to us. And this is what gives us the motivation. This is what gives me comfort to live lives of faithfulness because God made a promise and he's a promise keeper. But it gets better, friends, because 
he has promised to bring that work which he started to completion. That despite our fumbling fallenness and faltering faithlessness, if we rely on him, he will secure us in faithfulness so that one day, one day, standing before the very throne of God, we can hear from his lips, well done, well done, good and faithful servant, because our God, our God is faithful. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. We serve a faithful God. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you this morning. Thank you for your faithfulness towards us. Oh, you are ever faithful. Indeed, the prophet Jeremiah declares in Lamentations 3, 23 through 25, great is your faithfulness. Oh, Lord, we honor you and we bless your holy name that even despite ourselves, when we falter and we fail, you remain ever faithful to us. So, Lord, I pray over this church, this congregation, the leaders therein, those who serve, those who labor, and every brother and sister, O oh God, that you will preserve them in your faithfulness. That as, as they place their faith in you, Jesus, let them be found faithful. Indeed, let them be counted faithful through you Christ Jesus now and forevermore in Jesus name we pray amen